Welcome back to Podcast by Proxy. We are proud to announce that our show is sponsored by Headway App. Headway App is a book summary app that offers thousands of nonfiction insights in text and audio format. In our fast-paced world, it's essential to stay informed and keep learning new things without losing precious time. Headway App is your gateway to knowledge with its 15-minute book summaries on a wide range of topics. Exactly. Whether you're a lifelong learner or want to get more productive or just looking for a way to digest the latest nonfiction bestsellers quickly, you can find something interesting for yourself in this app. And the best part is you can read or listen to these summaries while commuting, on your way to work, or during your daily routine, making it the perfect solution for busy professionals, students, or anyone with a tight schedule and a thirst for knowledge. So if you don't have much time for reading full books like Atomic Habits or 5am Club, but still want to learn the key ideas from it, give Headway App a try. More than 5 million people already use the Headway app on a daily basis, and now our listeners can get 33% off a three-month premium subscription. Redeem the code at bit.ly slash headway podcast by proxy. That's bit.ly slash headway podcast by proxy. Hi, friends. I'm Katie. And I'm Olivia. And we are Podcast by Proxy, Canadian True Crime. Welcome. We're live. Sure are. On a very chaotic Monday. Yeah, there's a lot going on for not even 11 a.m. There is a lot happening. You're right. How's it going? Um, well, as I just said, Wednesday is cuddling on my desk with me, so I'm very happy. I hope she isn't making any extra noise. Um, but otherwise, I think like everyone else, just riding out the cold. Yeah. Feeding the birds a lot. <laughs> I've kind of become obsessed with feeding the birds, actually. Oh. I've now got, like, a variety of stuff that I put out for them, too. Like, different raw shelled, like, peanuts, sunflower seeds. So we're really so, becoming old, is really what you're saying. Yeah, wild bird mix, some suet blocks, the whole nine yards. I even bring my hummingbird feeder in and, like, warm it up every once in a while. Same with my suet, you know. <laughs> holy really old that's hilarious well i want to take care of the wild animals and the birds are predominantly what i have so that's fair i'm doing what i gotta do to keep those little peepers alive love that for you um i did want to mention we had a listener email us about a missing person that's happening right now in dawson creek bc um So we're not covering that case today, but I did want to mention it. Um, So it seems like a few people have gone missing in Dawson Creek. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's more than one. But this one specifically was sent in to us. Um, So his name is Cole Hosack, and a search recently began, and it seems as Cole was last seen at what's known as the Lone Star Nightlife in Dawson Creek on New Year's. Um, So his mother, Julie organized a search to begin today the day we're recording actually the 15th at 10 a.m um i'm just looking at a oh, wow like 45 minutes ago yeah yeah literally like they're out searching for him actively right now there's also a gofundme account which we can link to this episode um to fund the search efforts um, but I just wanted to pull up some information about Cole. It seems he is 24 years old. Again, last seen on December 31st, 2013, leaving the Lone Star Nightlife on Alaska Avenue in Dawson Creek. Um, and we can post a photo of him as well. Cole is described as Caucasian with brown hair. Five foot eleven has several tattoos, including a rose tattoo on his right temple. Um an owl tattoo on his neck and a full sleeve on his right arm. So anyone with information about the disappearance of Cole Hosack can call the Dawson Creek RCMP at 1250-784-3700. And we will keep an eye out for that one as well. Um, But yeah. Like that's horribly sad. Well, I hope all the best to Cole's family considering they're out actively searching at this moment. I mean, they're 45 minutes into a search. Yeah. Yeah. Look. I hope 
all the best to them, whatever the best to outcome is to them at this point. I mean, granted the amount of time I think they're doing a recovery. Yeah, it looks like he was wearing a black Yankees hat, a Nike hoodie, black ripped jeans, Nike Air Force shoes, um, height 5'11", weighing 200 pounds. So if you've seen anything, give the RCMP and Dawson Creek a call. And yeah, um, all the love to Cole's family. Yeah, that's devastating. Um, as as like I've told you, and I don't really, I won't get into it right now. But as a family who's had someone go missing, in it, it's a very unusual feeling. So, I wish them all the best getting some answers because mm-hmm. it does make a difference. Yeah, even if they're not the answers you want, having some form of I don't even want to say closure, but just like I said, answer makes all the difference. Mm-hmm. Appreciate you bringing that information because I did see that email. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right. We weren't ready to cover it, but it gets the attention it needs this way until we have more information. Mm-hmm. Bring her over my notebook like an old person as well. Not into that digital shit tried it and it was really hard didn't work for you no sorry it's okay uh so i am going to just put a trigger warning at the top of this episode that there is talk of children dying for anyone who's sensitive to that topic okay i know we all are but you know what i mean yeah for sure it's just a different kind of it's nice to have warning yeah yeah, and I will give some detail, so I just want to make it known that throughout it, it's a it's a topic of conversation. Mm-hmm. Today, we're going to talk about the Rallo family. Ever heard of them? No. I'm always like a little bit more, not excited to tell you because that's not the right word, mm-hmm. but I appreciate telling you something you've never heard more. That's fair. So John and Sandra, they met when John was 20 and Sandra was 15. And in 1966, shortly after they met, they get married. Okay. Her parents were, I would say, not fond of the age gap, but they said that Sandra was just swept off her feet. She was so happy. They didn't know how they could say no to her. And, you know, five years is five years. That's a lot. But they are getting older, and they were just going to keep an eye. John has a job as an engineer for City Hall. And shortly after they're married, um, in 1969, they have their first child, Jason. It's actually John Jason, but goes by Jason. Okay. And then they have their daughter, Stephanie, in June of 1971. Okay. So, pretty stereotypical cookie-cutter family at that time. They have their two children. They're living in their first home they've purchased together. Um, it was actually cute. Apparently, after they got married, their first, like, big purchase together was a dining room table. I love that. And I just remember, like, it's so fun getting your first, like, big purchase. Mm-hmm. Especially with your first very serious relationship because it feels so grown up. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. Like, we bought a bed, and I was like, oh, it's our first big purchase together. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, we bought a brand new bed, which, like, neither one of us have had a brand new bed or brand new mattress. Like, recently we did that, and it was like, oh, my God, look at us go. Yeah, like, yeah, you bought a house, but did you see that you also bought a bed? Yeah, no, the bed was a way bigger deal. Yeah, you don't even think of it till you do it, and then you're like, holy poop, I'm grown up. Yeah. So Sandra's raising the children. John is an engineer and they are living in Ontario near St. Catherine. Okay. And on August 17th of 1976, two young boys, Sean and Paul, not Sean Paul. Sean and Paul. 13, Paul is 11. They are the Labonte boys. They are playing shoreside, as I said, in St. Catherine at the harbor 
with their mother when they run off to play and they find a vinyl bag, like a gym bag or duffel bag, floating near the shoreline. They fish the bag out of the water being, you know, interested little boys. Mm -hmm. I probably would have done the same thing if I was 11, maybe not 13. But they fish it out. They pull it to shore. They realize that there is a green garbage bag inside. So they're kind of like picking at it and like pulling it open a bit. That's when suddenly they realize that what they're really looking at is the body of a young girl. Oh. That's horrifying yes. as a child or as an adult, but... Uh. So traumatizing. Like, yeah, at any age, mm-hmm. that's jarring. Yeah. But, like, these kids are just old enough that, like, they're not going to forget this. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think, just another layer on top of that at this age. Yeah. They immediately run back to their mom, tell her what has happened, and they go to alert authorities. Police arrive and begin to set up a scene. They remove the young girl, and as they're on scene setting up the crime scene, the Hamilton police chief is receiving a call from a man named Doug Pollington, and he says that his 29-year-old daughter and her two children are missing. He says that their father called in sick to work. The daycare has called looking to see where the children are as well as other friends have reached out because they're worried that they haven't been able to reach Sandra today and that's unlike her. As we said, Sandra's 29 at the time. Jason is now six years old and Stephanie is five years old. Okay. Doug Paulington says that his son-in-law, John, came over and advised him that there was a letter that he found in the house that was typed, not handwritten, that says that she had met a well-to-do lawyer and she had run off with the children and she's taken nothing with her but the kids in her wallet. Uh, that makes no sense, but okay. Yeah, so supposedly when the kids get back into school, Sandra begins to work again. So she meets, apparently, this rich lawyer in the workforce or out in the world and they have been apparently having an affair according to this letter and she has decided to run off with him. Sure, but like why wouldn't you pack some clothes? Sure. The kids' favorite toys weren't taken. Right. And apparently like Stephanie, she's five, she has like a very specific teddy that she goes to bed with. Yeah. And it's even talked about in an article because John says like the night before this they go missing he puts the kids to bed and even says, like, yep, Stephanie has her stuffy, like, Jason's in bed and good. Like, it's it's too weird. Your kid doesn't leave home, especially for good, without their favorite stuffed animal. Mm-hmm. That just stands out to me. Oh, yeah. Like, that would send me through a loop if I truly had done nothing. Yeah, for sure. Mainly because I just know how attached I was to my favorite. I think a lot of kids are, yeah, they have attachments to certain toys. and He's actually like three feet from me right now sitting over there because I'm still attached to him. Yeah, I just, and I feel like you would just, you would take clothes. like. Yeah, like your daughter is five. Your son is six. They're going to get dirty and messy even before you have time to go buy them clothing. Yeah. Probably. Mm -hmm. It just seems ridiculous. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And so, yeah, apparently she's, like, going out to the coast and she's going to, like, essentially start a new life with her lawyer and the kids. Just seems so crazy. And there's, like, statements in it, like, I've met someone I love. He's a rich lawyer. It's, like, things that... It's a weird way to say that you're never going... Yeah, I don't know. When I think out the gates, her parents were like, that's not really how she talks. Right. Like, so, yeah. So... Her dad, Doug, says that Sandra and both kids were at his house the day before and they were like playing in the pool and having a great time. And 
He's like, it's weird because Sandra told us everything. He's like, and I'm really in tune with my daughter. Like, I would know if something was off. And she seemed great. The kids were happy. Everyone was having, like, the best time in the pool. And you can totally picture that. I know people whose grandparents had pools. You go there, you just have, like, a lighthearted, fun day. It's so fun. I don't think she could just hide that she's about to run away and start a new life. Mm -hmm. I think she would seem sad or distant or off or something would seem different about her. Yeah, if she was planning on running away that night. Yeah. Yeah. Like, she's so close to them. It just seems too weird. So we come to find out that not only does Sandra's husband, John, speak with a lawyer the night that she went missing, but he also claims to be in such a rage that she has an affair that after he finds the letter, he rips up part of the carpet in the master bedroom because it had previously been like like soiled by the children or someone had gotten sick on it over the years or... They had a cat. Maybe the cat had been sick there, but he was just like, it was so spoiled and I was in such a rage that I just ripped up the carpet. Okay. Okay. You're not helping yourself here, bruh. <laughs> As police are at the house talking to him, just getting general information about what was Roy wearing, how are things going... Let us see the letter, you know, the huge. Mm-hmm. They notice that he has some damage to his left hand. From ripping up the carpet. Yeah. Well, and neighbors claim that they saw him, like, ripping up this carpet at 5 a.m. Because, you know, like, people like you and I get up that early. And so apparently, like, in their window, like, it's dark out and you just see him, like, ripping the carpet. So it's like, they were pretty adamant what he was doing because it was, like fishbowl they could see right into sure. his house yeah bro didn't close the blinds before he decided to rip up the carpet mm, okay but the weird part about that is that john told the police that he just got up at 9 a.m from sleeping in the basement where he had been sleeping on a cot and found his wife gone and ripped up the carpet after 9 a.m But everybody else, and I say everybody because there was a few neighbors that said this. No, bro. Yeah, saw him at at like 5 in the morning, right. Like you probably hadn't even gone to bed till 9 a.m. the way it seems. Right, so the story now makes no sense. Not that it made a lot of sense before. His timeline's kibosh. Sure. Right. I'm just going to put another trigger warning here because it is sad to hear. The coroner says that the five-year-old that is found, because at this time we're waiting for her to be identified, there was heavy bruising on her body. She was nude and died from asphyxia, likely from something fully covering her face because it seemed like um, there had been significant pressure over the entire face. August 19th. So just, like, a few days later, John's asking his boss, like, can I come back to work? I'm good. Can I just come back? Yeah. He says, my wife ran off with the kids. What am I supposed to do? I need to work to keep busy. John. He's really, yeah. As he's at home making these calls to his boss, the police show up at his house and he's like, oh, I was just going to call you guys. Because again, he has not approached the police on his own with any information or any concern. Yeah, he wasn't even the one that reported that they had left. No, and he's now hearing in the news that there's been a five-year-old found right as they leave. Like, right. You'd think he would be concerned. You'd think. So police make an official announcement that they believe their body found is Stephanie and have reason to believe. They do want to put it on the radar and possibly have, you know, John reach out and help in any way as well. But later that afternoon, Stephanie's grandfather, Doug, goes in and identifies the body himself. 
John is not informed about the update on Stephanie at this point because he's asked to come in and speak with officers because he's not reaching out or helping in any way. So once Doug identifies Stephanie, they just kind of stop updating him until he comes in to speak with them. On his way in to speak with officers, which you think he'd probably rush in because the police are calling you and your wife and kids are missing... He decides that he is going to stop at the bank and take Sandra off their joint bank account and make it a sole financial account. And his reason for this when he gets to the bank, because bro's got an excuse for everything, is that, well, she ran away. What if she drains my money? Uh, What? Yeah. Okay. He's, yeah. She fled. What about my money? What do I do? Like, fair, I guess, but in the context of everything else, a bit sketchy. Well, and, like, police know too much at this point that it's silly that he still thinks there's a chance for him to just be like, I don't know. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, uh, fair, if the only thing that we thought at this point was that your wife ran off with another man, like, okay. But, yeah. In the context of everything else, nope. Well, and then he tries to play up that he used to get anonymous calls when Sandra wasn't home. And they were like this man threatening to take his wife and kids because, like, he's in love with her and this and that. And all these weird things. And he's like, it all makes sense now because one time he let it slip that he was a lawyer. (laughs) Okay, well, now that's just convenient. Right. Also, he only called when Sandra wasn't home. Dude, this isn't the day and age of cell phones where you just text someone and saying like, okay, I'm leaving now, call them. Yeah. She would have to leave the house, go somewhere, call this gentleman, tell him that he is home alone. It Like, it's so silly. It doesn't make a lot of sense. No, it's too convoluted. After John makes the announcement, though, to police that he stopped on the way at the bank to make those changes to their account type and, you know, these anonymous calls all of a sudden, John's arrested, finally. Right. He really shows, like, no interest or remorse or emotion of any kind. Like, they were really thinking, maybe when we put cuffs on him, we'll get, like, a break in emotion. But no. They then tell him that they have discovered Stephanie and she is the five-year-old whose remains have been found in town or not far at a park outside town limits. Um, And he doesn't really have any reaction either. What? It's really messed up. Okay. If you actually believed that your wife ran off with your kids with somebody else and then your child was found, like, you would be distraught. Right? Or at least be like, wait, what the hell? Like, so confused. Yes. And he's just kind of like, whoa. That's ridiculous. So remember how I said this dude has an excuse for everything, though? Oh, God, yeah. Mm -hmm. When police ask him why his hands are cut up, or specifically the one hand, but both have scrapes on them, he says that the night that they went missing, well, the way he explains it, I believe it's, like, the next night, so, like, they've been gone all day, and police are looking for them. He says that... After dark, he decided that he was going to go out and ride his bike, and he fell in the dark on his bike and, like, scuffed up his hands and cut them in the bushes when he was riding through the bushes in the dark. Okay. Yeah. That makes no sense. No. So police realize they're not really going to get anywhere with John at this point, so they just start to, like, really ramp up their search a bit more. They do a sweep of the lake. They try to locate Sandra and Jason at this point, knowing that he's likely used the same method of disposal or they're in the same body of water. Um, There's no luck, but I read that in the sweep, they did find another missing man, so it wasn't for nothing. Just like a missing man from Hamilton was found during their sweep, and it was just like, well, that's a bonus. All right, then. (laughs) Yeah, he had been missing for months, so... I mean, like, that's great, but... I'm not making jokes that it's a, that it's a relief for his family to know, but it was just so funny that they just slip it into the article. Like, 
we were unable to locate. But we did find somebody else we were looking for. Okay. So, yeah, good on ya. Seeing as there's limited progress in the case, police turn back to the home, knowing that the carpet's mm-hmm. been ripped up and there's like a bunch of weird circumstances, mm-hmm. as well as they want to look through John's car. They find that near where the carpet's been cut up, there's seven tiny drops of blood on the, um, like, curtains against the wall. But, like, the blood spatter clearly shows that it's, like, gone into it with, like, some force. Like, they're splatters. They're not just drops. So it wasn't like something was held up and dropped on it. Um, Because at one point, like, John says, oh, somebody had a nosebleed. They were standing by the window and they must have gotten a few drops on it. And they can say like, well, no, they didn't come from above. These came from like near where this is happening at level, but like flung into the wall with some force. Because when I first read that, I was like, I mean, like seven little drops. I'm sure there's seven little drops of my blood multiple places in my house without me knowing because I hurt myself a lot. Yeah, maybe. I mean, and they have two small kids, so I just wasn't sure. Yeah, but <clears throat> again, once we know they show like a splashing force, it makes more sense. And again, like context. Yeah, the kid's been found dead, so now it's weirder. But he makes a comment to police that like he can't sleep in their like marital bed anymore because he's so heartbroken, and that's why. He has put their bed, like, outside their bedroom, leaning up against the wall. Okay. There's also a rather large stain in the basement floor. Um, When police really step back and look at the size of the stain and the location, they have reason to believe that John possibly took all three of them down there and, like, wrapped them up or got their bodies ready to be taken from the house to the car um so it's highly plausible granted we know that stephanie was kind of forced into some small packaging Mm -hmm. in a duffel bag so we don't know what the other two could have been wrapped in at this point yeah the duffel bag and the suitcase for some reason always gets me it's like i think it's just the idea that you have to physically force that someone's body to fit into something like that yeah, and like that's that's so personal and hands-on it's so ugh, yeah it always that one always gets me well especially too when you watch them then on a cctv footage just like wheel it out with other luggage yeah. or if you're a big guy you just like carry it out like i've i watched one the other day where this man puts a woman in a hockey bag and just rolls her out of the house mm-hmm. and it's like I don't know, it just, I've always looked at garbage bags on the side of the road differently now, but I don't want to look at every hockey player in Canada. Or just, like, like suitcases oh, and luggage, like, I don't know, I don't know. I mean, it's horrible, oh, yeah. it's horrible either way, but. No, but I totally get what you're saying. When you, and When you think about it. Like, you, there was a lot of thought put into that. Well, and I think that a lot of the times like this, we see that someone has placed remains into like a garbage bag and then into the suitcase. And I just think that like, again, it's so personal mm-hmm. having to, I don't, like, I don't want to sound insensitive saying it, but like, you know what I mean? Kind of like force the suitcase closed and stuff like yeah. that. And I just think it's, it's so graphic mm-hmm. to do that. I don't know how someone could. Yeah, no, I agree. Oh, yeah. While police are searching the home, they also locate a roll of garbage bags, and they can tell that where they're torn, when they match them from the company, showing the seam lines that they match the bags that Stephanie was wrapped in. Surveillance at a local dump around the time also does see John going to the dump. Um, And a dump security guard can confirm that he did see a man matching John's description with multiple bags and two boxes in his car. 
There was also a missing piece of mattress pad that he claimed Sandra had actually cut off a long time ago because apparently Stephanie had the flu and had vomited on it and she was unable to clean it. I, ladies out there, tell me if you would cut part of your mattress out. No. No. No, you wouldn't. No. That makes no sense. You're just no. like, cut your mattress. Agreed. Like, you would clean it up the best you can and then put a cover over it. Yeah, even back then, don't, isn't all your furniture wrapped in plastic in the 60s and 70s anyway? Well, I don't know, but like, okay, your child threw up on your mattress and you couldn't get it all out. You put a sheet over it. You're not cutting a piece of it out. The only thing I could think is if it stunk. Yeah, I don't know. That just doesn't make sense Because it's Ontario, right? So it gets really hot in the summer. Sure. But like, global warming wasn't so bad, so was it as hot? I don't know. I have so many more questions about the mattress aside from this case. Mm -hmm. Again, we all know it wasn't vomit anyway, so what does it matter, I guess? Yeah. It's still going to bug me, though. A little. On August 26th, the OPP say that they are going to do a heat-censored heli search for any remains that might be found... um, Kind of near, like, this canal, the area of the dump, like, just a little bit of everything. Again, a dump is hard because with a heat sensor, anything decomposing or breaking down makes heat, so that one's more difficult. So they focus predominantly on a place called Welland Canal. While the search is performed at 1227, they find a green sleeping bag floating with a green garbage bag sticking out the end of it. When they get closer to pull whatever this item is from the water, they notice that there's also red toenails sticking out of the end of the sleeping bag. Mm. To make matters worse, which is so sad, upon further inspection, there was a tag that had hand-stitched in Jason Rallo on the tag of the sleeping bag. So it was the son's sleeping bag for, like, taking a school or camp or anything, so... It's just disgusting. Yeah, that's brutal. Both Stephanie and Sandra's bodies were weighed down with weights bought from Canadian Tire. I know we love Canadian Always Tire. Always the weights, though, man. Like I know. Yep. But that does show that there was some planning involved in this. 100%. Like, you had to go buy those weights. Mm-hmm. Sandra is found to have a hole near her left ear. However, it is not a gunshot wound at this point that we know of. Her body is also severely decomposed, and that is also skewing what the hole in the side of the head is. Her nose, and again, I'm going to put another trigger warning here because these are quite graphic. Her nose is crushed and her tongue is visible out the edge of her teeth, which is an indication of strangulation. When you're strangled, the muscles naturally push up and the tongue comes out. So it does show that she potentially was unconscious as well. So the tongue was coming up on its own. And Jason was thought to be found years later. Um... But upon further search, his body was actually exhumed and it turned out it wasn't him, even though he had been buried in the plot where Jason belonged next to Stephanie and Sandra. Oh, wow. So they found a body. They thought it was his, but it wasn't actually. Yeah. And they had like a full funeral. They did the whole proceedings for him, I mean, buried I, him, I, had the ceremony. I think it's fair to assume that he has passed. Yes. But, Wow. Yeah, we'll come to find out that at this point, they are deeming that he has passed mm-hmm. when this all happens. Um, so they're really, really just counting on the fact that there's going to be three murder charges. Right. 
because of the severity and unusualness of this crime at the time, they hold John for 60 days um, while they deem him to take a psych evaluation because they want to make sure he's fit to stand trial because I think they mostly are like, I can't believe someone could do this in the right state of mind. Which, fair, I agree, but I also think they were like looking for a reason right. to not charge him mm-hmm. fully. December 24th, uh, John is actually released on bail. It's a $100,000 bail, but who cares if he's up for a triple murder? Let's just see where he goes, what he does. Like, you go live your life, buddy. No. Have fun. Exactly. No, no, yep. no. Yep. While out on bail... Following the killings, John is seen by neighbors mowing the lawn near the kids' swing set in their yard still. He lays flowers almost daily on the empty grave where Jason should be. When asked if he could work during that time, they were like, absolutely not. Like, this guy was convinced that he was just going to go back to his normal life, so he just wanted to start it now. They pretty much said, like, like his place of business was like, Oh, you were cleared of your crimes? He's like, not yet. They were like, oh. Like, just waiting on paperwork? He's like, nope, haven't even gone to trial yet. They're like, so you're just a convicted murderer right now? He's like, yep. They were like, we don't really want you anyway, so it's fine. Like, we're good. We'll fill the position. Yeah, like... (laughs) No thank you, sir. Well, and it's at this time when more research is being done on John, everyone's doing a deep dive into his life, building their cases, that we find he was frequent to take part in physical and more so emotional affairs. He caused many fights himself between him and his wife. They would frequently go back and forth. Um, At one point, I believe he had an affair with, like, their neighbor's wife. And over the years, he, like, essentially kind of forced it on her to, like, be friends with the couple again. And they go on a trip, and he ends up just, like, spending way too much time in the pool with the wife after they go skinny dipping at, like, 3 a.m. So this guy was having multiple affairs on his own and then had the audacity to act like it was his wife who ran off with somebody else? Yep. Uh, Yep. Thank you. uh, Yeah. So November of 77, trial begins. Trial will only last a total of 16 days for a triple murder. I mean, say. it was the 70s, different time. Yeah. That would last months now. <laughs> well, and the Crown still brought 48 witnesses and 100 pieces, 150 pieces of evidence because they were like, well, hold on. Holy shit. The prosecution's going to get them here. Yeah. Good. One week into the trial, as this evidence starts to be displayed, John's bail is revoked. Partially because the court system realizes how much of a piece of shit it is. Partially because the community is so mad at him that they're worried about his safety. So it's really a dual purpose. Right. Once the community really found out, like, the excessive amount of, like, cheating as well... They were just worried that other women in the community would come forward and it would be like more husbands would want to take justice, which should have let them. Evidence shows that the night that Sandra goes missing, there was likely a fight in the home. Lamps knocked over, pieces of the carpet missing, stuff just a little bit askew as if it's been bumped or someone's been roughhousing. They can see that Next to a set of blinds on the window that Sandra was likely strangled with the cord that was hanging from them. They believe that the children likely came in to see what was happening with all the ruckus. And when they were seen by John, that John decided it that the only option was to kill the children as well. Near the end of trial, John actually took the stand himself, though, and testified for a whole two of 16 days. Oh, my God. Two days? 
two days on his own behalf. Yeah. Oh, boy. And through this two days, he adamantly, vehemently stuck to the story that Sandra ran off. And he's devastated that something's happened to his children. Maybe it was the lawyer. Have we Maybe have we Sandra. identified this mystery lawyer? No. No, he's just a, fic- no. a fictional character. Got it. Okay. 100%. Mm-hmm. I just don't think the lawyer thing was ever really given a lot of value to begin with. That's so fair. I don't think there was even a lot of need to be like, guys. I'm just saying, like, you're going to go on stand and you're going to you're going to stick to your story for two days when there is no lawyer to even present. Doesn't exist. And like, why wouldn't you come with his name? Yeah, something. And like, throw it around and be like, did you ask him about this? And like, you have an excuse for everything. But yet the lawyer is always just the lawyer. Yeah. Police confirm that when they were searching the home, they also find quite a significant amount of bondage porn. Oh. They are able to say that this was definitely in the home before charges were laid based on a, maybe assuming like it was dusty or something. I don't know. But that was an important factor that that wasn't something that could have been planted there or put in the home. It was definitely something that had belonged in the home for a while. Other accounts come forward where John had also put his hands sexually on his sister-in-law as well. Um, It sounds like he did a lot of boob groping, grazing, touching. A lot of, a lot of boobs. A lot of inappropriateness. Yeah, like women would lean in to console him, say hello, greet him, and he would take advantage of situations and just get a good grope in. That is disgusting. Yep. When Sandra was found, she was tied up, and many of the knots that were used on her were actually able to be matched to one specific magazine that John had. Oh. Yeah, the significant bondage allowed, like, a lot of, I think, showing how to tie knots as well. Um, So they were able to, like I said, directly match them. On December 14th of 1977, after six hours deliberation, three first-degree murder charges were laid upon him. He was guilty. In his closing statements, there was no apology, just explaining that the family knows he didn't do it. And he is sentenced to three concurrent 25-year life sentences. All right. When John initially entered the prison, of course, most inmates wanted to kill him. You killed your wife and children. You were like the worst of the worst, almost. Bottom of the totem pole. Yeah. So his first few weeks were a lot of solitary, Mm -hmm. but over time he did assimilate himself into like gen pop pretty well. And I tried to find out how, but it was very hush-hush. But somehow John met a woman around the same time he goes to prison. Okay. But, like, from prison. I think there's, like, writing programs and stuff like that. It just seemed so soon after because, like, by 1979, he, like, was in a full-blown relationship with her. Wow. He was keeping it secret from the staff and the parole board somehow. (laughs) Um, she would actually come and visit him and sign in as a family friend. She was found to visit him the most often of all family members in the visitor law. Did any Shocking. other family members even visit him? I think a few, but not many. <laughs> Between 1979 and 1992, John and this mystery family friend were granted four conjugal visits or four 72-hour stays together. And was she out of prison at this point then? Yeah. Okay. Because she wasn't she's inmate, just like right? a citizen. Yeah, okay. No, she's just like a oh, citizen. Okay. She has to be approved to come in and meet him as far as I'm aware. Well, they probably met when he was out on bail. I don't know because I read that they met while he was like in prison. Huh. 
Maybe she was there and visiting so it made it someone sound else. Like after he was sentenced and went into like prison for sure. Mm-hmm. But maybe. I don't know. I mean, in 1977, John actually proposed to this mystery woman, though. So, like, maybe they did know each other in person because, like, that's a lot of bonding to build. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's similar to, like, how it is now where some women see these, like, sensational crimes or killers and either, like, believe, believe in their in innocence, innocence or, you know, yeah. write to them and tell them how much they love them and like it's not uncommon well i mean i think what is it like ted bundy or whatever there was a woman that supported him through everything and they ended up i think becoming like an item over the years Mm -hmm. but yeah he maintained his innocence through everything um and at this point like after multiple years of course the judges or sorry the guards have caught on and the prison knows what's going on right But no one had informed the parole board yet, indicating that he had been, like, building an outside life from behind bars, Mm -hmm. which was, like, not okay. And when one of his annual psych evaluations came back, it accidentally mentions a girlfriend. And the parole board's like, uh, excuse me? Right. What? Come again? Yeah. But, as usual, not a lot happens with it. He kind of just talks his way out of it. They seem like it's healthy for him, and they allow him to stay engaged to said mystery woman. But, she ends things in 2002, anyway. Okay. It's a long time. Oh, yeah. They were together for, what, since 1992 to 2002? Mm-hmm. So, it's like 20 years. It's a long time, yeah. And to think that they kept that relationship mostly a secret for so long. It's crazy. Yeah. Around this same time, between 2000 and 2002, John was held in a medium security at the time, and he had been granted escorted outings as of 93 off and on. Um, He had also, by the end of this period, been granted access to, like, cook his own meals, go on long walks on his own. He was on a work crew, so he went out into the community quite a bit. He was also allowed to attend church in Hamilton. Um, I would assume it's like a group of them go to church with guards and then come back. But Mm -hmm. he was still being granted a lot of privileges that a lot of other inmates weren't. He was a fairly smooth talker. He was charming. In the year 2000, he applies for a bid for full and day parole unescorted but both were denied they say this is denied because even after 24 years behind bars there's really no emotional change or substantial impact to his level of remorse for such crimes right well he's maintaining his innocence he's maintaining his innocence so it really makes no sense he would be let out yeah yeah This would honestly be the same trend every two years when he would reapply in 2002, 2004, and 2006. Right. Where it gets a little different, though, is in 2007, he manages somehow to just crank out, like, a few tears. And somehow the parole board takes this as, like, a change. Okay. doesn't say he does it. He just shows that he's sad that they're gone. Like, it's important to note he is not saying he did anything. This is also one of the few hearings where Sandra's parents were unavailable because they had fallen ill. And again, they're getting quite old at this time, so mm-hmm. it's more and more difficult for them to make it to every hearing. August 26th of 2008, he is released on day parole. He's finally granted it by 2008 after he cranks out those couple tears. And the police and the justice system do not, um, like, press him before he's released or to qualify for release to tell them, like, where is Jason's body? We still do not have Jason. We have no information of it. We have no inkling of where he could be. Nothing. But yet they don't use this as a bargaining chip. It's ridiculous. Yeah, that's wild. 
They also don't push for an admission any further. They really just were like, well, look at him. He showed some emotion. The conditions of his day parole are that he continues seeing his psychological counselor and gets evaluations done regularly throughout this time to show he's integrating properly with society, as well as if he is to build any relationships with a woman um, or a man, but just any type of intimate relationship, he is to advise them immediately. Mm -hmm. Although, why they put that as a condition knowing that he's kept a relationship secret for like 10 years from them. It doesn't make any sense to me. But. In 2019, John is removed from the prison system and allowed to live in a halfway house. Mm-hmm. They house him at the same house as a additional convicted murderer, uh, George Lovey. He was found guilty and convicted and has since been released of killing his girlfriend's parents. He also tried to rape and murder the girlfriend in question as well. I know those two are just like chilling in the house together all the time. According to the Sudbury Star, though, at 77 years old, John was granted approval to spend 90 days living at his girlfriend's house. He was living like 50-50 there. Okay. But because of medical leave during COVID... They were essentially allowing anyone to leave communal housing to stay somewhere safe, which I don't disagree with. I just don't know that he should have just been living 50-50 with with. his girlfriend and at the halfway house and for it to be approved. But February 22nd of 2001, full parole was granted to him and the only conditions he has at this point are to report any new relationships And to stay away from any and all family members that were involved in this matter. Wow. Other than that, John is living a normal life now after murdering his wife and two children. And he's what, like 80 now? Yeah, he was 77 in like 2001, 2020 kind of thing. So, yeah, he's just about 80 years old. So, Hmm. depending on how well he's taking care of his own health. During this time, because yeah. it seems like he prioritizes himself. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, he could be a very fit 80-year-old and have many years in him, or he could be dead by now and there's just no update on that because it wasn't worth it. That's wild. But yeah, as of 2021, he is currently living at his girlfriend's, unless he's been brought back to the halfway house, but I could not find an update on that. It's wild that they let him out. With no admission of guilt. Because to me, that's right? not taking accountability, which is usually like a huge part of getting paroled. That's like one of the big reasons why uh, Kelly Ellard has had such a hard time getting any kind of parole because she refuses yeah. to take any accountability for the death of Rena Burke. I know, and unfortunately, now they just keep giving her every other type of parole available except for full because, like, at the same time she's been in there and she is serving time, Mm -hmm. but it's like, then she just ends up screwing up again and being, I don't know, put back three steps. It's just, hasn't she learned? Yeah. Well, I don't believe that anyone else was responsible for those murders other than John, but it's really sad that Jason's body was never found. Yeah, and just... It seems like Doug, the grandpa, was really, like, advocating for the kids and really did everything he could all the way along. So I think mm-hmm. he deserved the answers. and Yeah. Yeah, I just hope that one day we can find them. But I couldn't imagine then also thinking that you have some answers and then finding out that they were wrong. Yeah. And, like, having to go back to grieving again. Mm-hmm. I, it's just so sad. Yeah, it's brutal. That was a brutal case. Yeah, sorry. Yuck. I just... Well... think it's solvable still, granted everything we know from the last few years. Yeah, I mean, I think it's... I don't mean solvable. We know it's solved. I was going to say, I feel like it's been solved, but yeah. Um, we would like to find the answers needed because... I do think like it's we said, more Jason's than still out there. likely that he was in a body of water, though, which makes it really difficult. Yeah. Especially after all this time. 
you know, if he was weighted down yeah. and he was probably a lot lighter. I guess maybe not than Stephanie, though. I don't know. I think just the also, element though, of water that... makes it difficult. Yeah, we know he had, though, like the two to three bags, he said, in the back of his car based on the surveillance at the dump. So I wonder if maybe he... Oh, and then he had two boxes. So maybe the boxes were like items that he was throwing away that were like the carpet and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. But it's just weird, like having all these things too and having excuses for them. Like the mattress on the wall, the carpet being cut off, the blood on the curtains, mm-hmm. the blood downstairs. Like he just had something for everything. Yeah. It was too much. He planned it out. Well, and I found one last article that, honestly, I'm not even going to give it a lot of face value because it's all, as I've said to you a moment ago, was that it's from John's perspective. Oh, Lord. And, like, I just don't think that John's perspective really matters. No. Um, yeah, he just, like was really kind of dirty. But, like, it says even, like, there's statements from people saying that, like, if he wasn't having lunch with a woman, he was, like, sitting watching women. Ew. And stuff like that. So, like, he was just kind of like a dog. And I think he was just cheating on her the entire time. Yeah, it would be interesting to have a little bit more insight into the motive, though. You know, but I don't think that we'll, we'll, we'll ever get that. Well, I think that. it was the constant fights because she kept finding out about women. Right. And she was constantly having these arguments with them to the point where he had been sleeping in the basement on a cot. Right. For, like, some time because, like, they fought about the neighbor's wife that one time. And then they got kind of over it, which I assume they were fighting about it for a while then. Mm-hmm. And then they become friends again and he crosses the line immediately. Like, I think it was just an ongoing of, like, she can't trust him. Yeah, he just didn't want to have a wife and kids anymore. Yeah, he Mm. just wanted to be obsessed with women like he always was his entire life. Mm -hmm. But Mm. it's just very odd. And it was like every chance he got to cross paths with a woman, he would make a pass at them. Right. And if they took it, he took it. Yeah. Um, like, he had full-blown relationships where he was, like, dating women and going to, like, their apartments and taking food over and eating with them and stuff like that. Right. So, it was just a lot. I think it was more the volume of it, and that's horrendous to say. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like it was almost like an every week thing. Like another rumor or something was coming back to her mm-hmm. that she was getting in his way. He was unfaithful. Yeah. Yeah. Brutal. Like she, he was no longer wanting to be, like you said, the family man. Mm-hmm. He wanted to be the single bachelor again. And the widower, fortunately, makes it probably easy to move on and maybe even gets you some sympathy. Right. That's disgusting. Yeah, because it seems like a lot of these things were just very callously taken care of, like in his planning, such as like just running to Canadian Tire and grabbing some like weights. Right. He's just so cavalier and relaxed about it all, too. Yeah. Oh, she just ran off with some rich lawyer. Yeah, I don't think no. so. I don't think she did. No. No, they did not. Not at all. Yeah, and then immediately turns up dead. Like, I don't think other so. Women. Yeah. yeah, like, you have carpets ripped up, blood on your house, furniture moved. Like, she didn't take off and leave your house like this, but yet she didn't pack anything. If all her shit had been gone and that mattress had been up against the wall and stuff, I would have thought, great, she took the money that was under it. Yeah, she... That makes sense. Yeah, she packed up and but left. But it doesn't. No, it doesn't make any sense. It never did. No, no, never. Well, shit. That was awful. Yeah. 
It really was. But that's my case, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, well. We don't wish you the best, John. Um, in yeah. fact, we wish you the worst. And yeah, I just think that at this point he doesn't deserve to have any time out walking around no. free as a bird. No. Well, that's so. our justice system, so we know that we don't actually have life. We have 25 years. We have 25 years to life, and I guess if you're a sweet talker enough, sometimes you slip through the cracks. Yeah, and this guy was not exactly a looker, so... Yeah. Well, if you enjoyed today's awful story, you can follow us on Instagram at Podcast by Proxy and wherever you're listening. Uh, leave us a five-star rating and review. Send us case suggestions. Much appreciated. We'd really like it. And we will talk to everybody next week. It's also my birthday coming up, so... I'd like some reviews for my birthday. Thank you. Yeah, send Katie some birthday reviews. That sounds phenomenal. It does sound phenomenal. <laughs> birthday reviews? Birthday reviews. Who needs Woo! a birthday card when you can have birthday five-star reviews? It's way yeah, better. Five-star specifically, guys. <laughs> I know I'm annoying, but please. <laughs> All right. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. I'll call you soon. Okay. Okay. Bye. 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 How do I stop this shit? I'll stop it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fuck me.